Mental Clinical Anatomy. This is a podcast for the education of physical medicine and rehabilitation residents. My name is Nicole Kelleher, and I'm a resident physician in the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. This program is geared primarily toward the education of residents in the PM&R field. However, it may be useful in the education for residents in the fields of internal medicine, family medicine, orthopedics. It may also be useful in the education of medical students or anybody else interested in musculoskeletal clinical anatomy. Hi folks, today we're going to be discussing a differential for posterior knee pain. Um, We should have two uh, quick episodes in succession this week, Uh, took off the last two weeks for the July 4th holiday, so we're behind a week. Um, So today we'll do posterior knee pain and then in a couple days uh, we'll have an episode drop for knee effusions. Um, So getting back to musculoskeletal clinical anatomy for posterior knee pain, the first thing to talk about is the cutaneous nerve innervation of the posterior knee. This is supplied by the posterior cutaneous nerve, which comes from nerve roots S1 through S3. This nerve is interesting. It forms directly from the sacral plexus. Next on the differential is a hamstring strain or sprain. And there are three muscles that make up the hamstrings, the semimembranosus, semitendinosus, and biceps femoris. Now, the important anatomical characteristics of the biceps femoris were discussed previously in episode two of lateral knee pain. There's some interesting dual innervation properties and interesting characteristics that are important when you're doing EMG. So be sure to check out episode two for a more in-depth discussion of the biceps femoris. For today, we're going to talk about semimembranosus and semitendinosus. So semimembranosus is innervated by the tibial division of the sciatic nerve coming from nerve roots L4 through S1. This muscle originates on the ischial tuberosity of the pelvis and attaches to the posterior medial tibial condyle and joint capsule. The next muscle is the semitendinosus. This is also innervated by the tibial division of a sciatic nerve coming from nerve roots L5 through S1. This muscle originates on the ischial tuberosity as well and attaches to the pes. For a more in-depth discussion of the pes and serine, please refer to episode three for medial knee pathology. Next up is a popliteus sprain or strain. The popliteus is innervated by the tibial nerve coming from nerve roots L5 through S1. And interestingly, the popliteus is the only muscle in the posterior compartment that crosses just the knee joint. So the other muscles in the posterior Uh, knee compartment or close to the posterior knee compartment either cross two joints or they don't cross the knee joint specifically. It's the only one that just crosses the knee joint. Um, An interesting way to think about the popliteus is biomechanically the function of it is to unlock the knee and this will kind of help you in uh, contemplating how the popliteus biomechanically moves the femur and tibia. The popliteus laterally rotates the femur on the tibia, and this is how it unlocks the knee. The popliteus attaches proximally at the lateral femoral condyle just anterior to the LCL, and it attaches distally on the medial upper, upper posterior tibia. It's very active in downhill running, and patients will often complain of 
pain with sit to stand and stand to sit when they have popliteus strain sprains. Typically, the popliteus is injured in a traumatic mechanism. It's less common to have the popliteus injured in an overuse mechanism. However, this can occur. Um, next up is the gastroc sprain strain. And when there's a sprain strain of the medial gastroc, this is specifically referred to as tennis leg, which is a common term used in the sports medicine literature. Tennis leg typically occurs at the musculotendinous junction of the medial gastroc. So the gastrocs are innervated by the tibial nerve, representing nerve roots S1 through S2. The gastrocs attach at the medial and femoral condyles, respectively, and they insert onto the Achilles tendon. The function of the gastrocs is to plantar flex the ankle and also to participate in knee flexion. In order to take the gastrocs out of the motion of plantar flexion at the ankle, um, such as when you're trying to find the soleus for doing Botox injections into the soleus, something that you can do to achieve this is to flex the knee. So when you flex the knee, plantar flexion is primarily achieved by the soleus in that case because the soleus does not cross the knee joint and the gastrocs do. Speaking of the soleus, the soleus is innervated by the tibial, tibial nerve as well, representing nerve roots L5 through S2. And along with the gastrocs, this complex is called the triceps surae. The soleus originates on the upper tibia and fibula and again inserts onto the Achilles. The soleus is responsible for plantar flexion of the foot only as opposed to the gastrocs, which also flex the knee as described earlier. The next muscle in the posterior region of the knee is the plantaris. And an interesting thing about the plantaris is that it's the longest tendon in the body. So it has a muscle belly proximally and then a quite a long tendon distally. It's innervated by the tibial nerve and that represents nerve roots S1 through S2. It originates on the posterior femur just above the lateral condyle at the lateral supracondylar ridge and inserts onto the Achilles with the gastrocs and the soleus. Uh, the plantaris inserts onto the Achilles deep to the gastroc. The tendon travels deep to the gastroc as well. The plantaris used to be implicated in tennis leg, but now it's better understood that it's actually rare to get a plantaris uh, strain or sprain in isolation. And usually it occurs with involvement of other muscles. The plantaris participates in weak ankle plantar flexion. The mechanism of injury, if there is an injury to the plantaris, is typically a running, jumping, pushing off of one leg injury, such as in tennis, basketball, or soccer. Uh, and another interesting thing about the plantaris is that it's absent in 8 to 12% of the population, which is quite a number of folks. Next is the PCL tear, which is an important pathology of posterior knee pain. The PCL is inside the joint capsule, but outside the synovium, and it originates from the anterior lateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle in the area of the intercondylar notch. It attaches at the posterior tibial plateau, and the attachment is not interarticular. It's actually extraarticular. The PCL resists posterior translation of the tibia on the femur. And some of the special tests that we use to um, examine the integrity of the PCL are the SAG test. And this is a test in which the knee is flexed at 90 degrees with the foot on the exam table. And if you see the tibia displaced posteriorly, that's a positive SAG test and suggests PCL pathology. 
the other test that we use is the posterior drawer test, and this is done also in 90 degrees of knee flexion, and it's just the opposite of the anterior drawer test. So you're trying to um, displace the tibia posteriorly relative to the femur. And if you don't get a good endpoint or if you get more laxity than the contralateral side, then you can suspect that there's a PCL injury. And then the last test that we use sometimes to examine the PCL is the dial test. And I also spoke about this dial test in episode two of lateral knee pain when discussing posterior lateral corner injuries. And for the dial test, what you're going to see is when you rotate the tibia down at the ankle, you're going to get greater than 10 degrees relative to the contralateral side of external rotation. Now, if you have a positive dial test at 30 degrees and not 90 degrees, then this suggests just a posterior lateral corner injury. And this, this suggests that the PCL is intact. However, if you get a positive dial test at both 30 and 90 degrees, degrees, uh, then you have to be concerned that the PCL is also injured. So that's the the other test that we use for PCL injury. Um, The mechanism of injury for PCL injuries is uh, typically a hyperflexion of the knee, such as in a dashboard injury. And again, these are very often traumatic injuries. The PCL is twice as strong and twice as thick as the ACL, and this is the reason why the PCL is injured less often than the ACL. The PCL is made up of two bundles, uh, the anterior lateral bundle, which constitutes 65% of the substance of the PCL, and this is where most surgeons will reconstruct if surgery is indicated. The other bundle is the posterior medial bundle, which um, constitutes 35% of the substance of the PCL. Uh, So in flexion, the interlateral bundle is tight and the posterior medial bundle is lax. And this is the reason that the interlateral bundle is most commonly injured in the setting of a hyperflexion injury. Some of the ligaments that use the PCL as landmarks for their um, naming are the ligaments of Humphrey and Risberg. These are also called the anterior and posterior meniscal femoral ligaments, respectively. And um, these ligaments run from the um, intercondylar area of the medial condyle to the lateral meniscus. And the terms anterior and posterior meniscal femoral ligaments actually refer to their position anterior and posterior to the PCL, respectively. So um, if PCL injuries go untreated, Patients are at risk for uh, chronic patellofemoral and medial compartment OA. Uh, however, people tend to rely less on their PCL than the ACL for knee stability. So it is often the case that these will not require surgery. For conservative treatment, you're looking at three to four weeks of immobilization in full knee extension and rehab, which specifically concentrates on strengthening of the quadriceps muscles. Patients will typically come back to jogging in three to six months, and they can return to full activity at six to 12 months. Now, if you're looking at surgery for the PCL, you're looking at either repair versus reconstruction. And reconstruction usually uses a patella tendon graft versus a hamstring graft, which can um, involve semi-tendinosis plus or minus the gracilis. Sometimes the Achilles tendon is also used. So posterior capsule strains can also cause posterior knee pain, 
the posterior capsule uh, resists knee hyperextension. So some of the ligaments that are important in the posterior knee are the oblique popliteal ligament. This ligament arises from the semimembranosus tendon and attaches at the medial condyle of the tibia and the lateral condyle of the femur, along with the um, arcuate popliteal ligament complex. This ligament strengthens the posterior joint capsule. It attaches to the capsule and the lateral meniscus. The other ligament that's really important in the posterior knee is the arcuate popliteal ligament complex. This complex arches over the popliteus. It attaches to the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus. And this attachment is often mistaken for a tear of the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus on MRI sometimes. The arcuate popliteal ligament complex attaches to the posterior fibular head and spreads over the back of the joint capsule and reinforces that posterior lateral joint capsule. So the next um, topic of discussion on a differential is the Baker's cyst. This is something that I recently struggled with. I actually had my Baker's cyst aspirated and injected with steroid not too long ago. And despite the teaching that oftentimes these will come back with not, you know, if you don't address the intraarticular pathology that caused them, uh, my knee is actually doing quite well, but that's just, that's just one person's story. Typically, you want to address the interarticular pathology to really address what's going on with the Baker cyst. So the Baker cyst is located in between the medial gastroc and the capsule and extends under the semimembranosus. The Baker cyst um, will communicate with the joint capsule. It's actually an outpocketing of the synovial membrane. And typically what will happen is that interarticular knee effusions will be pushed out into the Baker cyst via a valvular opening that um, permits unidirectional flow through this valve. And that's the unidirectional flow is, is a consequence primarily of the pressure being higher interarticularly with a significant knee effusion. One of the things um, that you can test on physical exam for a Baker cyst is Foucher sign, where you get a change in size or tension of the Baker cyst with varying degrees of flexion. And that's, and that's because that's representing flow of that effusion in and out of the joint space between the Baker cyst and the um, interarticular space with varying degrees of flexion. So um, pain tends to be worse with full flexion or extension with a Baker cyst, and often it's difficult to fully flex the knee. And I, as I said earlier, these are usually a secondary injury from something like um, interarticular uh, pathology like osteoarthritis or a chondral injury or a meniscal tear or rheumatoid arthritis. And so usually what you want to do is address the interarticular pathology. And if you don't do that, the cyst will typically recur. And so the differential for a Baker cyst, which is kind of an important thing to think about because there's some more scary things on this list. The differential includes a ganglionic cyst of the gastrocnemius, a meniscal cyst, benign and malignant neoplasms. These typically are rhabdomyosarcomas, pigmented villonodular synovitis, or synovial hemangiomas, or myxoid liposarcomas. There are popliteal artery aneurysms that can mimic a Baker cyst or popliteal artery pseudoaneurysm, and then a DVT. And imaging is really helpful, whether it be by ultrasound or MRI, and this can be both a diagnostic and thera therapeutic tool if you're going to do an aspiration and steroid injection under ultrasound guidance. Uh, you want to avoid vasculature, obviously, but you also want to avoid seeding tumor if this um, if a mass in the posterior knee isn't a Baker cyst and is one of these 
uh, malignant neoplasms. It would be really um, terrible to stick a needle in there and seed the tumor. And so you really want to get some imaging on this before you before you proceed with any interventions on the cyst itself. Another thing that is just an aside to mention is that in rare circumstances, Baker cysts can actually set people up for DVTs in the popliteal vessels. And this is just because of the increased congestion in the area and um, more venous stasis that it can occur with that increased uh, congestion. So if you have somebody that is, for one reason or another, more at risk for DVT and they have a Baker cyst, it's just something to keep in the back of your mind that these two things can happen in concert. So other pathology in the posterior knee, obviously bursitis is always something that comes up. So there's several bursts in the posterior knee. One of them is located in between the lateral head of the gastroc and the capsule. And the other is the semimembranosis bursa. And the semimembranosis bursa can actually get very large and is oftentimes a symptomatic uh, bursitis and cause of posterior knee pain. Another thing to help you differentiate again here between bursitis and a Baker cyst is that Baker cysts are typically below the joint line, whereas a semimembranous cyst are above the joint line. The next topic of discussion on our differential for posterior knee pain and the relevant anatomy is popliteal entrapment syndrome. So the popliteal artery is a continuation of the superficial femoral artery and it runs and it, it transitions from the superficial femoral artery as it travels through the hiatus of adductor magnus. And um, more in-depth discussion of adductor magnus and its interesting anatomical characteristics and the creation of this hiatus is discussed further in episode three, medial knee musculoskeletal anatomy. So check that out um, if you want to learn more about this adductor hiatus. Um, But the thing that's most important about this hiatus is that it's where this transition of the um, vessels go from basically the femoral artery and the femoral vessels to the popliteal. So the popliteal artery is anchored proximally by the adductor magnus tendon insertion on the medial femoral condyle, so that kind of helps hold it in place. And the popliteal artery gives off geniculate arteries. Um, this starts at the supracondylar ridge of the femur and goes through the level of the knee joint. And these geniculate arteries sort of surround the knee and create a periarticular anastomosis to supply the knee joint. The popliteal artery lies anterior to the popliteal vein, just behind the posterior capsule and the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus. The artery divides into posterior and anterior tibial arteries distal to the popliteal fossa. One of the complications that can arise associated with the popliteal artery is entrapment syndrome. Um, In this syndrome, you get posterior calf pain. The popliteal artery is usually entrapped by, in this case, by the medial gastroc and less commonly by the popliteus. And I'll kind of go over different gradings of entrapment um, in a few minutes. But what you, how you want to diagnose entrapment is either using um, MR versus ultrasound versus angiography. There are five different types of popliteal artery entrapment. Type one is where the popliteal artery has an aberrant Uh, medial course around the medial head of the gastroc. Type 2 is where the artery is not displaced, but the medial head of the gastroc inserts more laterally than than usual, and the artery passes medial and beneath the muscle in this situation. Type 3, there's an accessory slip of the medial head of the gastroc that slings around the artery. 
and then type 4, the artery lies deep in the popliteal fossa and is entrapped by the popliteus or uh, associated fibrous band of the popliteus. And then type 5 is where both the popliteal artery and vein are entrapped. And this can often be a surgical emergency and people can actually end up with amputations um, in this situation. And it, an important thing to remember about popliteal artery entrapment is that oftentimes it's difficult to um, differentiate this from compartment syndrome, which is an important pathology in the lower leg that we'll talk about later when we talk about lower leg anatomy. But it's important to remember that just in generalizations, compartment syndrome is typically manifest by anterior lower extremity pain as opposed to popliteal artery entrapment syndrome, which is usually manifest by posterior or calf pain. But again, that's not always 100% the case. Those are just generalities. And you can get both compartment syndrome and popliteal artery entrapment syndrome at the same time as well. In terms of the treatment for popliteal artery entrapment, uh, you're looking at uh, basically a release of that artery versus a saphenous vein bypass graft if you get into real trouble. So next on the differential is sciatic neuropathy. The sciatic nerve divides into the tibial and common perineal nerves at the superior apex of the popliteal fossa. The sciatic innervates both the bicep short and long heads um, by the perineal and tibial divisions respectively. So this kind of represents somewhat of a dual innervation of the biceps femoris. The sciatic nerve also innervates semimembranosus, semitendinosus, adductor magnus with the tibial division. And by the way, adductor magnus is also innervated by the obturator. This is another muscle with dual innervation. You can get mononeuropathies of just the perineal division of the sciatic nerve that can lead to an acute foot drop. So sciatic neuropathy itself is on the differential for uh, acute foot drop. The next neuropathy to discuss is a tibial neuropathy. Now the tibial nerve runs midline and it goes below the arch of the soleus. And sometimes this can be a site of entrapment, although the tibial nerve is usually entrapped further down distally at the ankle, as most people know with tarsal tunnel syndrome. But it can be entrapped more proximally by this arch of the soleus. Uh, the tibial nerve innervates the deep posterior compartment. We'll talk about that more when we talk about lower leg anatomy. And the tibial nerve innervates the gastroc popliteus soleus and tibialis posterior. Now that concludes our episode of posterior knee pathology and associated musculoskeletal clinical anatomy. In just a few days, we will also have an episode drop for uh, differential for knee effusions and the associated uh, musculoskeletal clinical anatomy. Uh, then in a couple, in maybe a week or two, we will have a guest speaker, or hopefully not a guest speaker, but hopefully to be a regular speaker, Dr. Mark Caramore, who's going to teach us about the hip and all of the great anatomical fascinations that we are so excited to hear about with the hip and all the pathology and horrible things that can happen as well. So that's really exciting. I can't wait to hear that. Uh, I heard a lecture by him just the other day, and it was fantastic. He's going to be really great, so can't wait for that. Thanks so much for joining us. Join us, please, in just a few days when we talk about knee effusions, and then make sure you tune in when Dr. Mark Caramore is on probably next week. I'm, I think we'll get it together by then to discuss the hip. Uh, I hope everybody had a wonderful 4th of July. All right, bye-bye. 
This podcast is not meant to represent medical advice. It is not meant to establish any standards of care, and it is not meant to be used in any testimony or in any legal capacity. Seek advice from your own physician if you have a medical problem. The podcaster, any guests, or any related entities or institutions are not responsible for the accuracy of this program. Thank you.